Easter at this time. You are welcome to go to the children's service that's prepared for you downstairs. Like everyone else, to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 again. And I'm going to pick up where I left off last week. If you don't have a study guide, could you raise your hand and somebody will put one in it. If you don't have a study guide, you might want to have that as we go along. Anyone not have one, we'll get a few down here. Frank down here on the front, Ryan, Patsy, who else? I saw another hand. <clears throat> Naray, anyone else? Okay. just want you to have that because as I go through this morning, I'm going to touch on a couple of things there. And by the way, we're talking about offices, order and leadership in the church, and we're talking about those people that God gives to His church, and pastor-teacher is kind of a hybrid. You sort of get that by the name, pastor-teacher. And uh, sometimes I speak in the office of prophet. Uh, you may recognize that when I am uh, preaching strong <laughs> messages aimed at change and calling you to take action. And that often is the prophetic expression of God's Word to His people. When He moves us to take action... And then other times, not that we shouldn't be also influenced to take action and bring our lives in alignment with truth, but other times we're trying to impart knowledge. We're actually performing the role of teacher. And that's really what these last two messages, last Sunday and this Sunday, are, is operating out of the role of teacher as I bring to you information from the Word of God that helps us understand, in this case, how the church is supposed to be ordered and structured from a biblical perspective. Now, along with those, uh, along that line, uh, I want to um, just say that it's a good thing I didn't try to preach all of this last week, because <laughs> it, uh, it, it, it takes more than 15 minutes this morning. Uh, in fact, I'm speaking to you from a lifetime of study. You know, everyone, I think, has those areas where they are particularly called by God to focus their attention. And the study of the church has been a lifelong passion with me, at least since uh, God laid his hand on my life at the age of 17 and told me I was going to be a pastor teacher. Uh, from that time on, the study and understanding of the church and how it's ordered in the Bible has been a lifelong uh, dream and passion and interest and focus of mine. And so I cannot possibly give you in two messages the literally thousands and thousands of hours I've spent in studying this topic. But I do want to express to you an invitation that if I spark something this morning in your thinking, you say, God, I never thought about that before. What does that mean? Or is that right? You know? then I want to invite you to say, okay, let me come in and talk to you about that. Or, uh, you know, just as well to take some extra study yourself, get into the Word, go to your small group, uh, get them involved with you and see what comes out of it, because I want to stimulate thought along those lines. If you have a study guide, I'm picking up with Roman numeral 2. Relating New Testament order with contemporary organization, power, and authority. There is a lot of confusion today. Remember the overall title of this series, The State of the Church in 2009. 
talking about the evangelical church across the nation, talking about Alliance Bible Church in McHenry, and, and our sister churches all around us, there is a great deal of misunderstanding, I think, today in the church regarding the nature of authority, the source of power, and the way the church should be guided and directed by its leadership. And I hope this morning, in the process of working through this, I can clear some of that up for you. As we look in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 9, the scripture says, or beginning in verse 8, it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, the pronoun here, because you have to go back a ways to find the noun, the pronoun here is Jesus. Jesus is the one who ascended on high and led captive a host of captives, and Jesus is the one who gives to people, which is probably the best contemporary translation of the word men in the New Testament. He means to all people. Jesus gives gifts to people. And then there's this parenthetical statement that Paul makes. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who ascended is himself also he who descended. Uh, he himself, he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. I'm not going to get into that verse. Someday, maybe. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, we started out in verse 8 by saying he gave gifts to all men. To the whole world, he gave gifts. Jesus Christ gave gifts. Then we find in verse 10 and 11 and 12 that he specifically gave these gifts to the church for a reason. That these gifts that Christ gives his church would equip the saints. That's everyone who is born again. So you see, we're making a distinction now between all people everywhere and those who are born again, who are saints, that he might equip the saints for the work of ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is supposed to grow in multiple dimensions. It's supposed to grow in maturity. It's supposed to grow up to look more like Jesus all the time. It's supposed to grow in terms of uh, numerical growth as we bring others to faith in Jesus Christ through our testimony, and they come to be saved and become a part of the church. So the church grows in depth, it grows in breadth, and it grows in individual ministry as these gifts to the church come alongside of all the saints and help them to discover what God has uniquely called them to do and, and release them to do that ministry so that together what we contribute to one another in the body will cause the growth of the whole body and the building up of itself in love. 
Whenever you study spiritual gifts today, and I've mentioned this every time we've talked about spiritual gifts, and I come back to it again this morning. Whenever you study spiritual gifts today, people want to include this list from Ephesians 4 in the list of spiritual gifts. But one of the things that we have to be careful in our exegesis of Scripture is to ask questions of the text that should lead us to distinctions and separate in our mind rightly dividing the word of truth. That's really what 2 Timothy 2.15 means, to accurately handle the word of truth. And in the process of that, we find that who gives spiritual gifts to the church? The Holy Spirit gives what? Abilities to whom? Individuals. Are you with me? Gift of teaching, that's an ability. Gift of helps, that's an ability. Gift of administration, that's an ability. Gift of leadership, that's an ability. The Holy Spirit gives abilities, supernatural abilities, to whom? Individuals. Some of you have gifts of leadership. Some of you have gift of administration. Some of you have the gift of serving. Some of you have uh, the gift of teaching. Some of you have other gifts that the Holy Spirit has given you to bless the body of Christ. But notice that this is not the Holy Spirit giving the gifts here. This is Jesus giving the gifts. So these are not spiritual gifts. These are Jesus' gifts. Notice also that they are not abilities. They are offices. They are roles that are given to individuals for the whole body. He gave his gifts to the whole body. And those gifts are apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. So Jesus gives people to the church at large, which is different from the Holy Spirit giving abilities to individual people. Are you with me? You follow me? Because this is important. One of the ways it's important is this. This is my favorite one. I love it when people come up to and say to me, <clears throat> I don't have the gift of evangelism. And I usually say to them, if I know them well enough, I'm glad to hear you say that because there is no gift of evangelism. No one has the gift of evangelism. What they usually mean when they say that is, I don't have the gift of evangelism, so I don't have to witness. Because that's not my ability. And uh, they think they're off the hook. But the truth is, if you look at the list of spiritual gifts, there is no gift of evangelism. No one has it, and everyone is called to be a witness. So if you don't have the gift of evangelism this morning, I want you to know you are theologically correct. You don't have it. You are right. But you're still called to witness and to share your faith in Jesus Christ. Whatever your personality, temperament, or other giftedness may be, you're still called to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Because evangelism is not a spiritual gift. It's a person whom Jesus gives to the body of Christ for a specific anointing that that evangelist might call the masses to repentance and faith 
through the, the special anointing that Jesus Christ has placed upon that person. The church is supposed to grow numerically because all of you are witnessing. But there are seasons and times when God brings in the harvest and uses anointed evangelists for that purpose. In the New Testament, we have Philip as an example. But we also, in our contemporary times, have, for example, Billy Graham. He's probably the best-known evangelist of our day that has called whole crusades to bring people to faith in Christ and fill the local churches with newborn Christians, because that's his anointing. In other words, these gifts in Ephesians 4 are people that Christ calls out to be that function in that office. Apostles are church planters. They're missionaries. They're the ones who go and plant the church in other places where Jesus has not been named. Prophets are those who speak with anointing the word of God to the church. They are the ones who declare, thus saith the Lord. And there are times when these offices kind of get blended because I've heard Billy Graham preach messages that sounded far more prophetic to me than evangelistic. And there are times when you've heard me preach prophetically because God gives me that urgency sometimes to come to the church and say, thus saith the Lord, and to call you to decision and to warn and to admonish and to exhort because that's the role of the prophet. And pastor teachers are called to come alongside the local congregation as Christ's gift to the church to teach and to shepherd and to provide loving, caring oversight and to give encouragement to each person to rise up with their spiritual gift and to become a part of the body of Christ to the building up of the body of Christ. One of the reasons I'm belaboring this point this morning is I want us to see that Jesus calls some people out from among the rank and file of believers and sets their life apart for a specific purpose and gives them to the church at large. They don't belong to a local church. They belong to the whole church. And Jesus places a call upon their life that calls them out of the ordinary course of living and demands that they serve Him and His church in a specific way. And most people who are called to these offices, although it may not be as dramatic as a blinding light while mounted on a horse en route to Damascus, most people who have this call upon their lives to be apostle, prophet, evangelist, or pastor, teacher, can testify to a time when Jesus Christ arrested them along the normal path of life, stopped them dead in their tracks, laid claim upon them and said, you must do this for my glory. You have no choice. I remember one time someone said to me many years ago, he said, you know, if, you, if you'd wanted to make a lot of money, if you wanted to be in a profession that had a lot of income, you shouldn't have chose ministry. <laughs> I only had to chuckle. Because I didn't choose ministry. God chose me. I didn't have anything to do with that. 
Well, I sit on the licensing and ordaining committee of our district, as most of you know, and we have people all the time that come before our committee. And one of the things that I want to know when somebody says, I want to be a pastor, I want to be a missionary, what I want to know is, tell me about your call. Tell me when Jesus Christ stopped you in your tracks and said you must do this instead of what you had planned to do with your life. Tell me about that time. And sometimes I hear things like this. Well, I've always wanted to be a pastor. I thought they were kind of neat. I, I like studying, and I, and I thought that would be a good thing to do with my life. And, and uh, my mom had prayed and said, God, I want you to make one of my children into a pastor. And... Um, I found out I had a speaking talent when I was uh, in college, and, and I think I'd like to do this. I, I'm not being facetious. I hear stories like this. And it makes me very concerned for that person. Because what I want to hear is, when I was on the road to becoming an engineer, when I was planning to be a cross-country truck driver, when I was studying management and I wanted to be the head of a corporation, God stopped me in my tracks and said, you must go and start churches and be a missionary. You must stop what you're doing and go and be a pastor. And I want to hear the time and the place and the conviction of that call of God. I was on the path to becoming a heart surgeon. That was my dream in life, was to be a heart surgeon. I think now knowing what I know, I would have probably been a neurologist or a neurosurgeon. But I didn't know that much about medicine at the time. I just knew that from the age of three, I wanted to be a doctor. And from the time I had heart surgery when I was 12 years old, I wanted to be a surgeon. And I wanted to be a heart surgeon. And that was my focus in life. That was my dream. That was my plan. That was my ambition. And one day along the course of that, God got a hold of my life. And I was in a bad way in my life at that moment. And the Lord Jesus Christ touched me and changed my life and transformed me. And I embraced Him as Lord. And one night in a meeting, He said, I want you to get up and speak on my behalf. And a few months later, I was reading Jeremiah. And as I read the call of Jeremiah, God's Spirit spoke to me personally. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Do not be dismayed at their faces, but you shall go and speak unto them all that I give you, and you shall say what I command you to say. I have appointed you this day to pluck up, to tear down, to destroy and uproot, to build and to plant. That's my claim upon your life. You will not study medicine. You will be my servant. That was my call. I know that as sure as I live and breathe. I know that with absolute conviction that Jesus Christ stopped me on the path to something else that I wanted to do and called me to do something in his kingdom. 
And I can testify with the Apostle Paul, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. It is a calling over which I have no volition. The only thing I can do is refuse. But I can't change the fact of it. And if I were to refuse, then I have, like Jeremiah, a fire welling up within my bones, and I have to speak because I cannot keep silent. God has placed that upon my life. I hope you understand as I'm sharing that with you this morning. I'm not complaining. I'm not bragging. I'm just stating the reality that a pastor teacher, an evangelist, a prophet, an apostle has that kind of encounter with Jesus Christ where on the road to something else, God grips their life and says, this you must do. And there's no alternative except to obey or to deny and turn away from following Jesus Christ. It's not the kind of thing you can say, gee, Lord, I'd rather not. What else would you have in mind? He doesn't play that kind of game. So Jesus Christ gives these people to his church. But that calling has to be recognized by the church. There are people who will stand up and say, I'm called to preach. And the minute they stand up, everybody falls asleep. They can't get three sentences out in logical order. They can't hold anybody's attention. They make all kind of mistakes. Or maybe they don't. Maybe they're actually a pretty good public speaker, but nothing ever happens. The church always must come behind and confirm the call. You remember when Paul was smitten on the road to Damascus, struck by the blinding light? He became blind. He had to be carried into the city. Who showed up at his doorstep? But one Ananias who had received a vision from the Lord and said, I want you to go and pray for Saul and put your hands on him and anoint him and I'm going to restore his sight for I have called him. And pretty soon the church began to recognize that God had done something in Paul's life. Do you remember Paul and Barnabas some 13 or 14 years later in Antioch? They were in a prayer meeting. And it was time that the Holy Spirit wanted to thrust them out into the missionary journey as they would begin planting churches all across the Roman Empire. And they were in that prayer meeting. And the Holy Spirit said to the elders assembled, separate unto me. He said this to the elders Separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work whereunto I have called them. And so the elders received the confirmation that these two people were called of God for a mission. And there was the affirmation and support of the church behind them. Friends, whenever God calls out a person, His people recognize it. I can remember standing before the First Baptist Church of Brandon, Florida, preaching one of my first sermons. I look back on it now, and I'm embarrassed. But they must have seen something, because it wasn't long after that that they laid their hands on me and recognized God's call upon my life to preach. And every person who's called in this way must receive the affirmation of the local congregation that knows them. You may not be aware of this, 
because I guess we don't always talk about all the details, but whenever someone wants to be a pastor or a missionary in the Christian Missionary Alliance, they come before our committee and we examine them. We want to know if they have sound doctrine. We want to know if they have a call to ministry. We want to know if they have a lifestyle consistent with spiritual leadership. We want to know if they have the training and background that they can provide this kind of leadership for the church. And then we give them a license. That license says we have examined them and found them possessing the necessary requirements to move into this role. But it is not ordination. It is not the laying on of hands. It is not separating them out for the ministry until they have served for at least two years in a local church. And at the end of that two-year period, there must be a letter without which they cannot be ordained. There must be a letter from the elders and the board of that congregation that says, we have watched this person for two years, they have lived and ministered among us, and we have seen evidence that they are called by God for this work of service, this mission, this pastor-teacher role. And we affirm that we have seen the anointing of God in their life, and we recommend them to you for ordination. If the local church does not send that letter, they will never be ordained. They have to have the endorsement of the local congregation. Because we expect the checks and balances. That if a person claims they've been called of God, other people will recognize it. And they'll know that that testimony is true. But one of the things that has been happening today, and and you've seen this happening in churches of all stripes and varieties across America, is the confusion over what kind of power or authority do these people have that get this ordination, this anointing, this consecration, this laying on of hands? Do they come among us as people who jump and you ask how high and when can I land? This is God's anointed. You have to pay attention to Him. You know, what kind of authority does that person have? And I want to tell you this morning, very frankly, from the Scriptures. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor-teachers have zero power in the church and no political authority. They only have influence by the anointing of God's Spirit. Anyone who wants more than that is in a place of danger. Why do I say that? Because the first thing is, if you study the Scriptures closely, and we touched on this last week, who is the head of the church? Jesus Christ is the head of the church, is He not? He is the chief shepherd. No one can take His office. Who has the power according to Scripture? What does the Lord's Prayer say? For thine is the power and the kingdom and the authority forever and ever. Amen. Who has the power? God has the power. Jesus holds the reins of power. 
It is a dangerous thing for any human being to assume that they have power because they don't even have their next breath unless God gives it to them. Only God has the power. So if Jesus is the head of the church and he holds the reins of power, what is it that apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers have? They only have influence. We had a superintendent when I first came here, John Fogel, and that used to be one of his favorite sayings. Every time there was a pastor's conference, every time there was a young ordinand conference, every time there was a gathering of pastors, he used to love to say, you have no power in the church, but you do have influence. And friends, I want you to know that before God and the way our organization is constituted, and I think it's right, the pastor is always under the authority of the board locally and the district superintendent at a district level. His political power is severely limited by design. And the most effective way for me to change you or change this church is guess how? When I pray for you. Because if I have the mind of Christ, and through prayer I have discerned the will of God for you or for this church, and I pray for you in the power of the Holy Spirit, God can change you on the inside. Or He can change the direction of the church. And my authority is a spiritual authority that comes by prayer, not because it has been constituted to me by men. And that's the way it should be. Because you know what? If I've got some crazy idea in my mind and I'm trying to pray that into you, guess who's not going to follow through with it? The Holy Spirit is not going to be nudging you to do something He doesn't want you to do. That I've got some crazy idea in my head. And so by design within the church... Those whom Jesus has given to his body as spiritual leaders are limited in their power to his power and in their authority to his authority in prayer. And they only have influence in this earthly plane as they have earned the right to speak because the life has been observed by those around them who have developed trust. It's not constituted. It's not ordained by the Constitution. It is by spiritual influence and guidance. This was true in the New Testament. Many people think that Paul had power over the churches. But listen to him as he writes to the Corinthian church. Regarding the man who was sleeping with his stepmother, what does he say? And you, when you come together, and I am with you in spirit, I urge you, separate this man from your midst. Deal with him. And then after they did it, he wrote his second letter, and they kind of went overboard. He says, look, <laughs> it's time now that you brought them back. But did he have the power to enforce that? No. He said, I'm going to meet with you in the Spirit by prayer. And when you come together, I'm with you before the throne. I'm going to be praying for you. Here's what I encourage you to do. But he could not command them to do it because they could tell him to go jump in a lake if they wanted to. In fact, they did eventually. And Paul writes to Timothy regarding those Asian churches, including Ephesus and Laodicea and Philippi and all of those wonderful churches that were dear to him. 
Paul writes to Timothy and he says, You know how everyone in Asia has turned against me. Because you see, Paul had no power over the churches. He only had influence. And if the enemy comes along and stirs things up, the church can turn away from the leaders that God has given. And there's nothing they can do about it except to pray because they have no power by design. And any church that invests power in a particular leader is a church that is flirting with danger. Because you've heard the old saying in, in, in human politics, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. It is a dangerous thing for a human being to take charge. Which leads me to my fifth point in this section. And that is this. There is some teaching out there today where people are claiming to be apostles and prophets, and they're claiming to be infallible. You know what I mean by that? They're claiming to be without error. And whatever they say is from God, and it's true truth, and you better listen to them. That is a dangerous notion. That is a dangerous notion. And where it comes from is, as I've kind of studied this movement is that people who have kind of revived the novelty of the office of apostle, which is really nothing more or less than a missionary in the New Testament sense of the word, they've revived this concept, and here's where the thinking has gone awry. Apostles wrote the scriptures. The scriptures are infallible. Therefore, apostles are infallible. I am an apostle. Therefore, I am infallible. And the premise is wrong. Apostles did not write the scriptures. That's the first problem with that syllogism. And the second problem is, the scriptures are not infallible because apostles wrote them. The scriptures are infallible because the Holy Spirit wrote them. It's not the people that were infallible. It's the Holy Spirit who, in the miracle of inspiration, guarded the text so that His Word would be infallible, coming through, yes, fallible human beings. People who make mistakes, but not when they were writing the Bible. Mark was not an apostle. There's no suggestion that he was ever an apostle. Luke was a physician, and there's no suggestion that he ever held the office of apostle, although he wrote the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. We have no idea who wrote Hebrews. Some of your English Bibles say in the title, the letter, uh, the, the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Hebrews, but understand the title was not inspired. That was added by people trying to be helpful. Usually when you try to help out God, you don't. But they were trying to be helpful because no one knows who wrote Hebrews. But I know this for sure. Paul didn't write it because the writer of Hebrews says, I do not have first-hand knowledge of Jesus Christ. I'm giving you the gospel that was given to me. And Paul would never have said that because he said to the Galatians, I got my gospel directly from Jesus. He would never have written those words. 
And so we have all kinds of books in the New Testament that cannot be traced to apostolic authority. But that begs the question. That's not even the point. The point is, the Scriptures are infallible because they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, and the church has always recognized that these 27 books are special. They've only gotten into trouble when they've tried to explain it. But the truth is, it's a miracle. God has given us 27 infallible, inerrant books that have nothing to do with who wrote them, other than the Holy Spirit guided men as he wrote through them the words of God and preserved them for us. So the entire syllogism, the whole idea that apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers are infallible is a false notion. They're human beings. When Paul got out of bed in the morning, I don't know if he wore any kind of pants, but if he did, he put them on one leg at a time, like everyone else. He didn't float into his clothes every day. And no one that God has ever called did. Moses made mistakes. Abraham made mistakes. Joshua made mistakes. Joseph made mistakes. David made big mistakes. Peter made mistakes before and after Pentecost. Paul made mistakes. Carissa was telling me about the children's church lesson this morning. Paul and Silas had such, such, or Paul and Barnabas had such a falling out that they couldn't even go on together. That was a mistake. Maybe splitting up was not a mistake, but the reason they did it was a sadness to the, to, to the testimony of God in their lives. There are no infallible people. Friends, God uses, God uses ordinary people, broken people, sinful people whom he redeems to accomplish his purposes. And I'm here to tell you this morning, I am thankful that God has allowed me the privilege of serving him. But I know that I am not in any sense without error. And those of you that have known me for any length of time can testify. It's okay to say amen. (laughs) That's the reality. Everything has to be tested before the Lord. Everything has to be prayed over. Pastors who want to have the supreme power are in great danger. Because although we're called of God and given to the church, we walk as men among other people who need to receive the guidance and leadership of the Holy Spirit and always have it tested and verified by the agreement of the saints. There's always that check and balance that is appropriate. And I don't even think that pastors necessarily get all the direction first. I believe God raises up in the church His vision, His plans, His purposes. I do think this, if it's of God, I'm going to recognize it when you say it. But God's next step for this church could come from any one of you. And when it's sounded out, we will all hear it from the Lord and say, yes, that's what God is leading us to do. Because my role 
is not to, to run the church. My role is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to model the ministry of a shepherd, and to teach the Scriptures as I pray for you to become what God has called you to be. Well, how then does that role differ from elders and deacons in the local church? What is the difference? Let me point out some significant things to you. I said that pastor teachers, evangelists, prophets, and apostles are called by Jesus Christ. And and they need to be able to point to a specific time in their life when they were stopped en route to something else and set apart for that work. They're given to the whole church. But Paul says to Timothy in the third chapter, if anyone in the local church desires to be an elder, that's a good thing. Let me take you back to that person that says to the LNO committee, stands for licensing and ordaining. Let me take you back to them. They say, my mom always wanted a pastor out of the family. I kind of like pastors. I sort of enjoy teaching. I have a talent for speaking. I'd like to do this. Okay, go back to your church and become an elder. Because that's perfectly legitimate. If you have a gift of teaching and God has put it on your heart to to shepherd and, and model for the flock the life of the Spirit, go back to your local church and do that. And they will recognize you, and you will be appointed an elder in your local assembly. In the book of Acts, when the Apostle Paul and his group went across the Roman Empire starting churches, what did they do when they got to the end of the first missionary journey, which is where they did the U-turn and headed back to Antioch? What did they do? They came back through those very towns, strengthening and encouraging the believers and appointing elders in every church. Now, isn't that interesting? There's a couple of things that really stand out to me about that. First of all, let's get this picture in our mind. Paul goes into a town. And he goes to the synagogue, because that was always his habit. He goes to the synagogue, he preaches. Some Jews believe. The rest of them think he's crazy and throw him out. That takes about two or three weeks. Now they want nothing more to do with Paul. So he goes to the Gentiles, he goes to the marketplace, and he starts preaching on the streets. And people get saved. And pretty soon, there's a group of people, let's say they're as big as the group of people in this room this morning. There's there's 60 people that have come to Christ in this town. He's been there about two months. And they're all brand new babies in Jesus. Okay, are you with me? And so Paul says, okay, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get together, share meals together, talk about your faith together, get together and worship together, you know, celebrate Jesus, talk about what God's doing in your life, because the Holy Spirit was definitely alive in those people. And things were happening. So so I want you to get together. I'm going to the next town, but I'm going to be back in a few months. And I'll see how you're doing. So Paul goes on, takes him about six months. He's on his way back. He comes back to this town, and here you are. 
you've all been Christians for six months now. And Paul worships with you, and he kind of looks around, and he, he sees what God is doing, and, and he sees that Tom over here stands up and shares something on a Sunday, and Mark, Mark over here is sharing something occasionally, and, and, and Ron, who just walked back in the door, is <laughs> I'm picking on your brother. He's sharing, you know, and he sees this happening, and he says, he says, boy, I think God's anointing is on these guys. They're teachers. And he, and he watches, and the people are kind of looking at him, and they're saying, okay, well, Tom, what do you think the Bible means about this? And, and he says, okay, Tom and Mark and Ron, you guys are going to be elders in this church. I'm appointing you. How old are they in Christ? Six months. How's that happen? How do you get a, an elder who's only six months old in Jesus? Well, in terms of the whole group, They've been given gifts of teaching. They've been growing up fast, maturing in the Lord. They're standing out. They're in that local church. They are obviously leaders. And Paul says, you're going to be elders. And he appoints them. And now they're the elders at the church. They didn't get elected. Sorry for all of you democracy buffs. They didn't get elected. They got appointed. They got appointed by apostles who observed them. Now, let's extrapolate this concept a little further. Suppose Tom says, you know, Paul, I'd like to accompany you back to Antioch and spend a little more time with you and kind of get discipled by you. Would that be all right? And and, and Paul says, sure, Tom, come on, go to Antioch with me. Now, when Tom gets to Antioch, that church is 15 years old. And all those people are really mature in Christ. And Tom comes to that church and he feels like, wow, these people are giants. I mean, they're spiritual giants. I'm just a babe. Is Tom an elder in the church at Antioch? No, he's not. In fact, he's a babe in Christ in the church at Antioch. But in his hometown, he's an elder. Because eldering is a local Phenomena in a local church based on relative spiritual development. All you have to do is be two or three steps ahead of the rest of the pack and have the gift of teaching and a lifestyle that demonstrates the fullness of the Holy Spirit and you can be an elder in that group, but it doesn't make you an elder in every group. Secondly, you can be an elder if you want to be an elder. I have to give the exception here, because in the Christian Missionary Alliance, at the present time, if you're a woman, you can't be. And I'm sorry for that. I'm genuinely sorry for that. But anyway, right now, the CNMA only recognize elder as a male role. However, you can be an elder because you want to be an elder, because you desire to be an elder, because you have the gift of teaching, because you're filled with the Spirit, and you would like to provide leadership to your local body because that's the stirring of the Spirit in your heart. But when you get up on Monday morning, most likely you still go to whatever role you have. You know, Mark is an insurance underwriter, and Tom is an engineer, and Ron is a carpenter and a craftsman, and they go to their work. I don't go practice heart surgery Monday morning. I'm right back there in that room. 
Because God said, you can't spend your full time doing that. My claim is on you for my body. And if I go to Antioch, I'm still a pastor teacher. And if I go to Africa, I'm still a pastor teacher. And if I go to Australia, I'm still a pastor teacher. And wherever I go, because I'm a pastor teacher, I'm also an elder because of God's call and claim. And His anointing. I left college when I was 23 years old and went to be an associate pastor in Pensacola. And the minute I walked into the church, I was a pastor teacher and an elder. Because that's what God had called and equipped me to be. That doesn't mean I was as smart as all the elders that were there. Elders are in a local body in distinction from the pastor, teachers, evangelists, prophets, and apostles that Christ gives to his whole body. Elders are locally the people whom God raises up with gifts of teaching and gifts of leadership and the filling of the Spirit to provide leadership at a local level. And they provide leadership for the church. How do elders differ from deacons? There's two ways that I can see, only two ways in Scripture, that deacons and elders differ. The first one is, Elders are appointed by spiritual leadership that is already in place. Because elders have a gift of teaching, and therefore they are influencing the church of Jesus Christ by regular teaching from the Scripture in some fashion or another. Deacons are not necessarily equipped with the gift of teaching, although they must be godly people who are filled with the Spirit. And in the New Testament, deacons were both men and women. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. They are equipped to to be administrators and servants in the body of Christ, overseeing certain of the ministry of the church in the capacity of leadership without being public teachers of biblical truth, although the Scripture says they must hold the mystery of the faith in their heart and be able to explain it, they are not necessarily equipped to stand in front of the group and teach. For that reason, I think, that God has so ordained that the local assembly can elect its deacons, but because elders have the additional influence of the teaching role in the assembly, they need also the anointing of the leadership that is presently in authority because they have the capacity to lead the church astray much more easily than anyone else. And because they have that teaching role, that training role, that discipling role that is very specific, James says, let not many among you become teachers, my brothers, because you know we will be held to a stricter judgment. Anyone who dares to to stand up here and do what I'm doing, and I do it with fear and trembling before God, believe me. Because I know that many of you are listening to what I have to say. And even though by this time you ought to be teachers, you're not. Some of you still need milk to feed you. And you're depending on me to give you that. And woe is me if I lead you astray by my teaching. It is a a, a significant and humbling and awe-inspiring thing 
to step up in front of a group and say, this is what the Bible means. And for that reason, there is a distinction between elders and deacons in the local assembly. And that is the only distinction that I can find. And the one is appointed and the other is elected. By the way, our bylaws recognize that because if you look at our bylaws, elders can only be nominated through the nominating committee. This allows the process of extra scrutiny, whereas deacons can be nominated from the floor in a business meeting. And the reason for that is because my conscience will not allow me to have elders nominated from the floor. It's risky business to do that. But you can make, any of you can make a suggestion for anyone to be an elder if you make it to the nominating committee. Or you can make it to the leadership team and they can pass it along. But the nominating committee has the final say as to whose name comes out. Because I think that's biblical. And that leads me to my conclusion, which is going to be in just a moment. How is it that churches relate to denominational leadership and denominations? Let me say a couple of things right out of the gate that, that we should understand. First of all, does God like his church to be broken up into a bunch of different denominations? Answer to that is no. What did Jesus pray for in John 17? That they might be one, as we are one. And friends, when Martin Luther was convicted by God that the Roman Catholic Church had long departed from the faith, his intention was not to start a new movement. His intention was to call the church, the church, back to the truth, by Scripture alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, to call the church back to the truth. The church threw him out. The organized church of his day threw him out. And the Protestant Reformation was born as the Protestant movement, the protesters, not by choice, but because the organized church ousted him. And then from there, we had other splinters, Calvin and Wesley and Arminius and all of that, and, and the Methodists and the Presbyterians, and, and then the Congregationalists and the Presbyterians and the Puritans, and the, uh, on and on the list goes until today we have Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists, Assembly of God and Church of God and Evangelical Free and Pentecostal Holiness and Christian Missionary Alliance and Nazarenes, and, and on the list goes. And when God looks down at this, I don't think he's very happy. But by the same token, we have to be wise. Okay? When I was a senior in college, the idea I had in mind was I was going to leave college and go start house churches. I was kind of like 35 years ahead of my time, I guess. I was the emergent church before anybody knew what to call it. <laughs> I was going to go start house churches and living rooms and just be very informal and, and not have organization, just have house churches. And I thought that was a great idea because I didn't like denominations. And I was praying about that when I was invited to consider a pastorate, an associate pastor at the First Alliance Church of Pensacola, Florida. At the same time, I was also asked to consider a Baptist church, and I was asked to consider a Methodist circuit. That's a trip for you. 
And as I was praying over that, I said, God, why am I being invited to these churches when I was just going to go out and be a carpenter and start house churches? And God said, I've called you to serve my people. Guess where they are? Oh, they're in the church. Well, that's where I want you to go. And so God sent me to the First Alliance Church of Pensacola. And I kind of went kicking and screaming a little bit. But what I learned over time was God had called me to serve his people, and his people are gathered in churches that are organized under denominations, for the most part. And I realized pretty soon that for me to spend my life trying to unify the church and do away with denominations... Well, I may as well walk over to that wall and just beat my head against it till I die, because that's not ever going to happen. We have denominations. So if we have them, and they're here to stay till Jesus comes, and I think they are, then what becomes the, the main issue? I want to be in one that's as close to truth as I can be. I want to find one that's as close to the Scripture, and that doesn't prevent me from behaving in a scriptural manner. And when I looked at the Christian Missionary Alliance, the reason that I am satisfied in the Christian and Missionary Alliance is because, first of all, it is missional. It has at its heart bringing people to Jesus Christ around the world. And if there's one thing that the Christian and Missionary Alliance has done to excellence around the world is plant indigenous churches among people groups that have never heard the name of Jesus and raise up churches. You can ask anybody in missions and they will tell you that the history of the Christian and Missionary Alliance stands out as excellent above all comers as a missional force for winning the world to Jesus Christ. And that's a part of my heartbeat. The other th reason I'm a part of the Christian and Missionary Alliance is because of this totally bizarre name, there is liberty. There's freedom. What I mean by that is, we agree to agree on the fundamental essentials of the faith. The inerrancy of the Word of God the virgin birth and deity of Jesus Christ, His blood atonement for our sins on the cross, His bodily resurrection from the grave, and His bodily return to this earth. Those are the focal points. Go call the world to this Jesus. And having agreed upon that, we agree to disagree on all the other stuff. You can be a five-point Calvinist and be CNMA. You can be a dyed-in-the-wool Arminian and be CNMA. You can believe in eternal security now and forever no matter what you do. Or you can get lost about three times a day and saved again and be in the Christian and Missionary Alliance. You can believe that the rapture is going to occur at the beginning of the tribulation, the middle or the end. You can believe all of these things and be in the Christian and Missionary Alliance because we have agreed that we will not divide over these issues as long as the centrality of Jesus Christ and winning the world to Him is of paramount importance in our focus. And that's our driving mission. We will allow people to hold a lot of crazy ideas. And some of them are crazy. 
I'm glad to know that he is able to keep what I've committed to him against that day, and I'm secure for all eternity. If you think you can get lost this afternoon, let me know. I'll be praying for you. I want you to come to have full assurance. But I will not stop you from teaching in the church. And I will not stop you from aspiring to be a pastor if God's call is on your life. Maybe you'll get straightened out in Bible college. I don't know. But if you still come out an Arminian, that's okay. Am I, am I giving you too much information here? Do you, know, do, you, do you have any question about where I'm coming from? But tongue-in-cheek, I'm saying to you, it's okay. You can still be Christian Missionary Alliance. And so I'm a part of this organization because I believe we have the right focus, the right purpose. We lift Jesus up. We want to win the world for Christ. And we have agreed not to disagree on issues that should not separate the body of Christ. But to focus on the essentials. This is crucial to our mission. Also, I want to let you know that in the Christian Missionary Alliance, I said this one time in the presence of my district superintendent and his assistant. And I thought one of them was going to choke. I said the church is the highest order of authority in the New Testament and the district office exists to serve us. And I thought I was going to have to do CPR. Because biblically I believe that. You can't find district office in the Bible. You can't find a denominational office in the Bible. Colorado Springs isn't even mentioned in the Scriptures. It's just not there. But the local church has the authority at the local level in the body of Christ. There is no organization higher than the local church in the New Testament. And we are ordered according to a biblical format. So, where does the denomination in the district come in? A group of local churches in two states, namely Illinois and Indiana, have come together and said, there are certain things we can do better if we do them together. So we're going to ask the district office to examine, license, and ordain pastor, teachers, and missionaries because we believe that can be done better at a district level. And we're going to send delegates to those committees to help that process. And once a year, we're going to meet and have a meeting as a district so that we can study what's happening in this collective effort and make sure that it's expressing our convictions. Okay? And then we're going to have a national body where we can all come together and we believe and hold the same values and we're going to pool our resources to send missionaries to the ends of the earth. Because in today's world, the backing of, of an organization and the, the, the pass, the, um, what do you call them, passports and visas and all those kinds of things and the training and the development and all that needs to go into missional effort can be better done at a national level. There, there have been many people who have come out of this church over the years that are full-time missionaries. Do you realize if we had nothing higher than ourselves in terms of collective cooperation, that we would be paying about five or six or ten full-time salaries right now? This local church can't do that. But together we can do that. As God calls people up in this church, we don't have to scratch our heads and say, how are we going to pay for their salary if they go off and serve God somewhere? 
we can say, you know what, we're part of a bigger organization that will help them get where they want to be as God has called their lives. So we have a national body to help us with that, and we have a district body to help us with that, and we meet every two years now at the national level to consider the matters that concern us as local churches. When we have strong leadership in the alliance, we have leadership that recognizes that the local church is where it's at. That the local church is where God speaks to his people. That the local church is where he rises up people and calls them out and empowers them and and sends them forth into the harvest fields. And they exist to help us get that mission done. And when we have leadership that thinks they're in charge and the churches ought to salute and snap to attention and do what they're told, we have bad leadership. And I will tell you this, friends, and this is what I mean by the local church being the highest authority. If I ever go to council and they decide that they're going to take out the inerrancy of Scripture, for example, or the deity of Christ, or a belief in eternal hell as a consequence of lost people not coming to Him, if they ever decide to change that, and all of council votes, we're no longer going to hold to inerrancy. I will be back here. And I will call the leadership team together. And I will say we need to call a congregational meeting to vote on whether to withdraw from the Christian and Missionary Alliance because I have to surrender my credentials. And we will have a congregational meeting And if you choose to stay with the alliance that has now denied the inerrancy of Scripture, I will have to resign. Or we will pull out together and still be the local church that God has called. Now, there's some caveats to that. We might have to give up the property. So what? Better to be right than to be rich. Better to be in the will of God. And hold the truth of Scripture than simply to have a convenient place to meet. And that's not even a, a given. It might not happen. But do you understand what I'm saying? The local church is God's authority. This is where it's at, folks. As people come to Christ and grow up and are nurtured here, it is the district and the national office that helps us fulfill our mission. But it has to begin in your heart. And what this church does has to begin in your heart. And we have checks and balances, thankfully, that keep us together. If I lose my mind someday and suggest to you that we sell the property, take the money, and go start a commune in South America, if I ever do that, you have a leadership team and a district superintendent who will come together and they will put Paul Martin in a little white room. And, and, and they will get you a new pastor. Okay? Because we have those checks and balances. I'm not infallible. And I hope you know that. I, I know you know that. <laughs> but I hope you'll take action if I get stupid. Okay? By the same token, if you go nuts, and you decide, you know what, we're tired of that Paul Martin's preaching. He dares to stand up there and preach the Bible every Sunday. 
We want to get rid of him and get somebody that says what we want to hear. And your church leadership team and your superintendent come together and say, you know what, that church needs to come into line. He's staying and he's going to preach and that's our, that's, that's our word. Or if your leadership team goes off the wire and they want to sell the property and go to South America and start a commune, I can call the district superintendent and call you together and we can fire them and get the right people in leadership. You see the safety that exists because we do not vest power in any person. Jesus has the power. The local church is his vehicle of operation. And you are his hands and eyes and arms and ears and feet. And we function together by the Holy Spirit who is the Lord of the church. And to that extent, the denominations enable us. We can utilize the strength that comes in numbers. And to the extent that they deter us, we will seek God. But we have that kind of safety within the family. Well, I've said enough. My voice is tired and your ears probably are. But I hope this has been helpful for you. And I hope that you'll recognize that what we're doing tonight is not a business meeting. It's a worship service. We're going to come together and hear what Jesus has been doing among all the people this year. We're going to dream together and pray together about what he wants to do with us in the future. This is a worship time because we're the church. We are the church of the living God. Filled with his spirit. Jesus is our great shepherd. And we have the privilege of being the the instrument of God in the world. And seeing him give birth to new babies who will grow up to be servants, helpers, leaders, administrators, prophets, apostles, evangelists, elders, deacons, and pastor teachers. Right out of this group. Praise God for that privilege. Father, may we be the church that you're pleased to dwell in and in whom you take delight for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.